0: I just returned from a fascinating, eye-opening, enlightening trip. Uh, many of you texted me along the way while I was there and wanted to get a better understanding of what this trip is all about and perhaps learn some of the lessons that I took out of it. So I figured that we would dedicate our time together this morning to have a discussion about it. So the basic story is I was invited to join a trip to Manila, Philippines, which is pretty far away. Um, and this was part of the work of Operation Benjamin. What is Operation Benjamin? I wish I had a video to show because the video is so moving and it's so powerful, but Operation Benjamin is a group of caring Jews in the United States who have altruistically taken upon themselves to correct one of the many wrongs from World War II. So they're a group of dedicated volunteers and skilled genealogists who do months and months of investigation and very thorough research They then contact the living family members of the particular soldier who they think was Jewish, many of whom, those family members, many of whom are not even aware that they're from a Jewish heritage at all. And then they file this endless documentation. I saw the dossier for each one of the soldiers. It's astounding how much work they need to file and how much paperwork they need to go through. They give it to the United States Army, ascertaining which fallen soldiers were in fact Jewish but have been mistakenly buried as Christians under a Latin cross. So it's worth mentioning that as a product of the yeshiva system that I am, and I would venture to say many people in the room have the same kind of education that I had as well, I learned much about the Holocaust through my years in school. Uh, The Holocaust is something that's such a major part of our identity in this generation, and we feel so impacted by the horrors and the calamities that occurred. The reason I'm reading today is because I wrote this on the plane. And I can't figure out if it's day or night. I'm, I'm just very confused. Um, what I personally knew very little about from my years in school was the greater context of World War II and how brutal of a world war it actually was for so many different countries. We focus on the Holocaust and its impression on the Jewish people, which obviously can never be overstated. It's something that is the greatest calamity in history. However, there was something much larger going on that very often our yeshiva system does not talk about. Having the opportunity on this trip to visit, I don't know how many are familiar, Corregidor Island, which is an amazing historical uh, battlefield, Uh, the bridge of the river Kwai, I don't know if anyone ever heard of that, and the infamous Burma Railway and Hellfire Pass, which uh, I'm sure many of you are familiar with as well, it began to give me an appreciation of how barbaric and brutally evil the Japanese were in their fight in World War II as well. Not that we can ever compare evils But the stories that they told us about the inhumane atrocities of the Japanese army sounded awfully similar to many of the stories that we hear about the Nazis in Germany and all across Eastern Europe. So it is no wonder to me, after seeing all of that, uh, that these two armies partnered together and created the greatest atrocity in human history. So Operation Benjamin works very closely with the ABMC, which is the American Battles and Monuments Commission. And they do a phenomenal amount of research, as we mentioned, in identifying every last Jew who may have been killed 80 years ago uh, from the American army. For the most part, these soldiers were between the ages of 18 and 23, very young men, and they have long been forgotten over the last 80 years. Nobody's going to visit them in the Philippines. Nobody is thinking about them. Uh, In fact, in the 1950s, uh, the families of 40% of those American soldiers who were killed made a decision not to bring the bodies back for burial in America. They just said, out of sight, out of mind, keep them there. And they chose to have them buried wherever it is that they fell in battle, which is why there are American military cemeteries all over Europe, as well as in the Pacific Theater from World War II. So the cemetery we visited this week was in Manila, Philippines. Um, It is the home to 17,400 soldiers who are buried there, American soldiers, in addition to a paralyzing monument that we saw, absolutely amazing, which listed 36,000 American soldiers, names, who were also killed but whose bodies were unfortunately never found. So this cemetery alone is a memorial for over 50,000 American soldiers who were killed out in the Pacific during World War II. Uh, The cemetery in Manila, it's important to understand it, just to get a context of of what it is, Um, it consists of 150 acres, extremely serene, an amazing place with stunningly manicured land and rows and rows and rows of perfectly symmetrical and endless crosses everywhere you can possibly turn. Our group went to Manila to replace five headstones with the names of Jewish soldiers who were written on top of a cross and now have their names uh, substituted, written on top of a mug and david. We took the cross out and we put the mug and david in, allowing for these Jewish soldiers to be properly identified as Jews. And I have to say that the imagery of seeing a Latin cross being taken out, lying on the ground, and a and David standing upright in its place was something that, for me, was extremely moving. So we recited Kaddish at the graves and uh, did a whole bunch of other things, but I thought to myself, never have I cried when reciting Kaddish. Now, Baruch Hashem, I never had to recite Kaddish for a relative. Maybe that's why I've never cried. But there... When we stood there together and declared, Amen Yehei Shemei Rabbah, as you asked that HaKadosh Baruch, whose name and essence should once again be sanctified, at a time when you're looking at a cross that has now been taken down, and a and that stands proudly and upright, for me, made an astounding impression. It was something that was extremely moving. And in the context of that, the Gemara says in Mesechas Chagiga, a very interesting comment. The Gemara quotes a pasuk from the Navi Yirmiyahu, "Bimistarim tivka nafshi mipnei gava." What does that mean? Hakadosh Baruch says about Himself that His soul will cry, "Bimistarim tivka nafshi." Hakadosh Baruch inner soul cries in the hidden chambers, "Mipnei gava," because of Your pride. And the Gemara wonders what exactly does that mean. So the Gemara first says that Hakadosh Baruch outer face is always happy, "Hod v'hada l'fanav." When you encounter HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you see a very joyous, a very beautiful uh, experience that is very positive. However, in the inner workings of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world, there is something else that's going on. And the Gemara says, Why is HaKadosh Baruch Hu crying? And the Gemara explains that the rebonish shalom cries every day, Because of the pride of the Jewish people that is no longer there, and has been given over to the Ovde Kochavan. That's a reason for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to cry. And as I thought about what an unbelievable privilege it was to be able to restore just a little bit Yisrael, the pride of the Jewish people and in thereby alleviating the tears of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it was something that to me uh, really made me cry. I was extremely emotional. It was just something very, very special. So what was amazing to see was, as I mentioned, there's a perfect symmetry of all of these crosses, and thousands upon thousands of them across this Christian cemetery. But then you notice, unmistakably, that there's a mug and dove in the middle of all that, which breaks the, the symmetry. And to me, that really signified the life of the Jew in Gallus, that the life that we aspire to live in this world, ha'olam, is one where we understand that we always need to shamelessly distinguish ourselves from all the other nations of the world. And we need to stick out and we need to be different, never to blur the lines in either direction. I thought about that so much. So many in our generation have neglected this notion of understanding what it means to be different. And they have lost their pride in what exactly it means to be the Am HaNivchar. One of the books that I read along the way, I had a long time on the plane to read a lot of things, but I read this entire book on the plane. If you've never seen it, it's an amazing book. It's one of Rabbi Jonathan Sachs's book. It's called A Letter in the Scroll. And what he writes about is, it's an entire book that he wrote to his children. It's an open letter to his children of 250 pages where he talks about why is it that we should feel pride in being Jewish? Why is it something that's important to any of us? And he says there are so many that struggle with this question, so maybe it's time to unpack it. Maybe it's time to figure it out and to uh, go through a discussion to explain and articulate what it is about being Jewish that should make us all proud. So he starts off the book, the very first page, he writes the following, a group of Jewish university students had come to see me. They were planning their course for the next year and they wondered whether I can suggest a theme for them. I thought for a moment and then I suggested this, a brilliant idea that he had. There are many Jews today doing interesting and significant things for the world. They are artists, academics, judges, and doctors, politicians, heads of voluntary organizations, writers, and journalists, Their work must raise, in myriad ways, important questions about what to do and how to live. So he suggested to these university students that they write letters um, to these individuals and ask them whether they would be able to give a brief personal statement about what being a Jew means to them and how it makes a difference to their lives. You will then have a series of texts that you will be able to compare with some of the classic statements of our tradition. You will be able to listen to the voices of the past and those of the present, And between them, you can construct a fascinating series of discussions on what being a Jew might mean to all of you. That was his idea, which I think was a phenomenal idea. The students were excited by the suggestion, and during the weeks that followed, we exchanged ideas about whom exactly we should ask and how to construct the questions properly. Months passed, and hearing no more about the project, I inquired with the students about where the progress was holding. They told me that they had sent out almost 200 letters and received only six responses. These were three of them. The first came from a famous and distinguished Jewish academic. Listen carefully what he wrote. Question was, why do you feel that being Jewish is something good for you? Or what do you feel about being a Jew? So he writes, I am quite incapable of writing even a short passage on what being Jewish means to me. All that I think is that I am a Jew in exactly the sense in which I have two legs, arms, eyes, etc. It is just an attribute which I take for granted as belonging to me, part of the minimum description of me as a person. I am neither proud of it nor embarrassed by it. I am just a Jew, and it has never occurred to me that I should be anything more than just that. The question, why be Jewish, is something that I cannot answer any more than why be alive, or why have two legs. That was his response. Okay, second response came from a noted Jewish writer. Jewishness is a source of comfort and reassurance to me and gives me a sense of belonging to a proud and ancient community. But all that is entirely due to the fact that I was brought up as a Jew. I have no doubt that I would have felt the same way had I been brought up as a Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, Buddhist, I would have felt the same way. Those are the first two responses. Third response came from an Israeli prominent in public sphere in Israel and the diaspora. This is his answer. One of the most interesting definitions of Judaism that I know is something that I heard a number of years ago from a young Israeli boy. Judaism, he said, is hereditary illness. You get it from your parents and also pass it along to your children. And why call it an illness, I ask? Because not a small number of people in the world have died from it. So those are the answers. Why is it important to be a Jew? That's what they responded. So that's very extreme. But he then goes off on a launching pad to explain what the answer to that question should actually be. Why is it that we should be proud to be Jews? I have to tell you that in the Philippines, it was shocking. They really honestly believe that the Jewish people are the Am Hanivchar. Like we don't believe it, but they believe it. When you walk in the streets with the yarmulke, they point to your yarmulke and bow down to you. You get in a taxi, they say it's free. Chosen people? No, you don't have to pay. I'm telling you, these people believe that we are the Yam Hanivchar, and it was amazing to see it and to think about how we don't even realize ourselves that we are the Yam Hanivchar, and yet so many others see a tremendous amount of pride in what it is that we represent and who we are. In Atta Chon and in Havdala, we mention Hamavda Ben Kodesh L'Chol. Ben Or choshech ben Yisrael laamim. Hakadosh Baruch Hu is the one who separates between kodesh and chol, between that which is holy and that which is profane. Ben Or choshech between the light and the darkness, uven Yisrael laamim. Serv Salavetchik pointed out that these three are not the same at all. The distinction between Or choshech is something that is instinctive; it's something that even animals can appreciate. You look outside and you see: is the sun shining or is it dark? And you can understand the difference between Or and Choshech. On the other hand, he said, when we talk about the difference between Kodesh and Chol, so we're told in the medrash that it's not so easy to discern, it's not so simple to understand the difference and appreciate the distinction between Kodesh and Chol. The medrash says that as Avramavina was going to the Akedah, he sees from a distance, Vayaris HaMakom Rahok, he sees a holy place in front of him, he sees Haram Maria, and he turns to Eliezer, his servant, and he says, do you see what I see? And Eliezer says, I do not. And that was the first time that Avramavina Avinu realized that when it comes to Kedusha, when it comes to something holy and sacred, not everybody has the opportunity to appreciate that distinction and to be able to see it for what it is. So the difference between Or and Choshech is very pronounced, it's very obvious. The difference between Kodesh and Chol is something you have to be tuned into. It's something you have to be able to appreciate on your own by having a sensitive soul. On the other hand, he asked what exactly is supposed to be the distinction between Yisrael laamin?" When HaKadosh Baruch Hu made a distinction between the Jewish people and the rest of the world, what does He want that to look like? Does He want it to be like the difference between Yisrael... I'm sorry, between Ar and Choshech, which is pronounced, which is so obvious? Or does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want it to be like the difference between Kodesh and Chol, which is nuanced, which is subtle, and which is not so obvious? How does HaKadosh Baruch Hu want us to live? What's the expectation? And the answer of Salav said was that HaKadosh Baruch Hu on the occasion of Naiban Har Sinai, we just read about Kabbalah Satorah, Parshas Yisro and Parshas Mishpatim, and it's a real spectacle. And we talk so much about the details of how beautiful this was. Hayam This was something that the whole world came to a standstill at the time of Kabbalah Torah. Oflo Parach, it said that the birds didn't make any noise, the animals were silent, everything came to a complete standstill. The entire world realized that something special was going on. Sounds wonderful. However, the Medrash says as a result of that. There was an ayin hara that was late in the luchos, and that's why Moshe Ravenu broke them. As exciting and beautiful as Kabbalah Satorah was, it didn't last. So you ask yourself, then why did Hakadosh Baruch Hu set it up that way? The Ribona Shalolim is fully aware of the danger of an ayin hara. So why did he set it up this way? With so much fanfare, with so much hoopla, with so much going on around it that ultimately made the luchos be destroyed. Why did Hakadosh Baruch Hu do that? Explains where Mary Shapiro, the answer is because HaKadosh Baruch Hu at the occasion of Maimon Har Sinai needed to choose the Jewish people as the Am HaNivchar. And he was teaching us, what does it mean to be the Am HaNivchar? It means you have to be pronounced in your difference, in your distinction between yourselves and everyone else. It's not something that's just subtle. It's not something that is nuanced. It's something that is so obvious and so clear about what the difference needs to be between us and the Ummah HaOlam. We're about to celebrate Purim in just another two weeks. And in the Megillah we're told, We're told that all the Avdei HaMelech used to bow down to Haman. So we're told that Mordechai did not bow down. Why are you not bowing down to Haman? The king said that everybody has to bow down to Haman. Mordechai said, I'm a Jew, that's why I'm not bowing down to him. So the Kedusha Slevi writes that the truth is, Mordechai was a minister in the government just like Haman was, and therefore he didn't have to bow down to Haman. All the other ministers didn't bow down to each other, so he didn't have to bow down. If that's the case, why did he have to say anything? Just ignore them. People are heckling you, people are giving you a problem, just ignore them. You don't have to give them an answer. And explains the Kedushah slavery, the answer is because it is important that when a Jew practices Judaism, they make it very clear and obvious to everyone what it is that they stand for, what it is that they do. And for Mordechai to just evade the issue and say, "Well, I'm not in the mood. I don't want to." would not have been sufficient. He had to be proud of the fact that he was a Jew. He had to be proud of the fact that he was lo yichra lo Yishtachava because he's part of a different religion. And we don't bow down to people like Haman because we are Jews. It's fascinating that the Ramah talks about in Yerodei Ahilchus HaBadah Zara whether or not a Jew is about allowed to lie. If somebody comes over to a Jew and says, are you Jewish? Are you allowed to lie and say no? This was a question that some teenagers in our community asked about two years ago when we had Some very difficult times on the subways, and they said, if somebody comes over to me and asks if I'm Jewish, am I allowed to answer them and say no, potentially saving my life? And the Ramah talks about it, and it's a fascinating discussion. So that is an uncomfortable question to be asked, and that is a very difficult story to think about. But in essence, what the Ramah is teaching us is that every Jew needs to live life being proud of the fact that they are Jewish. The Torah tells us in Parshas Chayi that Avram Avinu, after he finished burying his wife, Vayakam Avram he gets up from eulogizing his wife. Ches le-mar. Now, obviously, Avram Avinu was not going to negotiate with the people of Chais while he was eulogizing his wife. So, why does the Torah have to tell me Vayakam Avram, that Avram Avinu got up? Of course, he didn't do it at the same time while he was giving a eulogy for his wife. And every word in the Torah is specifically there for a very designated reason. So why does the Torah have to tell us this point? Vayakam Avram, that Avram Avinu got up. Rabbi writes in his Chumash that perhaps the word Vayakam here does not mean that he got up from eulogizing his wife, but rather what the Torah shares with us a few besook him later. Vayakam Efron asher bamachpela. The Torah says that after negotiating a deal to buy the Ma'aras Machpelah, Vayakam Sede Ephron, the field of Ephron. Got up. What does it mean it got up? It was a field. La Avram le Chazal tell us what does it mean, Vayakam, when it's talking about a field. They say what it means is that it was elevated. It used to belong to simpletons, to the B'nei ches, and now it was transferred over the ownership to Avram Avinu, And therefore it was Vayakam, it was elevated to a different status because Avram Avinu was considered to be a king in that time. And therefore the Torah says Vayakam. And in this context as well, Rav Salavetchik explained... Vayakum Avram me meso means that Avram Avinu separated and elevated himself from the Bnei Chais. and he told them although we feel that we have so much in common although we live in the same community although we do share so many values and so many different things that we cross paths on however Avram Avinu says to the Bnei Chais, I'm not going to allow my wife to be buried together with all of you I know that there's a local cemetery and that's where all the locals are buried but I'm not going to allow my wife to be subjected to be buried there Vayakam Avram Avram felt that he had to elevate his family. He had to elevate his wife. And he had to make very clear that he was not going to be the same as the rest of them. Which is why Rashi tells us when Avram Avinu says, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem, Rashi says the obvious paradox is, are you a ger or are you a toshav? Ger means a stranger. Toshav means I'm an inhabitant. I live here. So which one are you? Are you a ger or are you a toshav? And the answer is, that Avraham Avinu understood that he had a dual identity. On the one hand, he's a Toshav, on the one hand, he's a contributing member of society and he has to work alongside his fellow citizens to advance everything that goes on in the world. But at the same time, Avraham Avinu always understood that although he's engaging together with his community and doing so many things together with them, he always remains a gear. A Jew always needs to remain a gear and always need to be focused on different things. We have a different lifestyle and a different set of rules that govern and guide the decisions of our lives. My father told us as children, you'll notice in the Berchas Hashachar every morning, maybe you never noticed, that there are two brachas that we say that sound awfully similar. We say a bracha, Hanosei Naya Koach, And we also say a bracha, Ozer Yisrael Bigvura. So why do we say two brachas that sound very similar to each other? Hanosei Naya Koach means we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us strength. Ozer Yisrael Begvura means we thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us strength, for making us powerful. So which one is it? Why do we need to have both of these when they're seemingly sharing the same idea? And what he suggested was, they're not the same at all. HaNosin of Koach is thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving me strength. I wake up in the morning and I have the ability to do things. I can get out of bed and I can accomplish things during the day. So I thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving me Koach. On the other hand, Ozer Yisrael Bigvura means I thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving me fortitude to live life as a Jew. It's not easy. When I know that the rest of the world is living a different set of values, when I know that everyone else is living life differently than I am, it takes a tremendous amount of courage to be able to stand up and say, I'm going to live life differently than everyone else. And that is Ozer Yisrael Bigvura. We thank HaKadosh Baruch Hu for giving us the Gvura, the fortitude and the strength to stand up against societal pressure. And this is something... That the Jewish people have exhibited from the times of Avram Avinu. Avram Avinu was referred to as Avram Ha'ivri, which means, as the Medrash tells us, Avram Avinu was ha-echad kula echa. Avram Avinu was on one side of the river and everyone else was on the other side. He was living life differently. And that's what a Jew needs to be. And that's what it always has to be and has been. So I felt that this was something that was very, very special as we, as we changed. Across, and you then see that we are totally different. We live life differently. We die differently. And we're buried differently. Everything about the Jewish people is different. And that's the way it's meant to be. That's what it's supposed to be. The problem with this insistence of Avram Avinu where he says he has to bury his wife in a separate cemetery. The problem is that for our purposes in Manila, there was no permission granted by the American government to exhume the body and move it to another cemetery. So is there any substantive maila to removing a cross and replacing it with a mug and david when the body will actually remain in a Christian cemetery? This is something that really bothered me a lot. And before I agreed to go on this mission, I said I had to think about it. This is what I was thinking about. Is there any mashmaos? Is there anything meaningful in what we're doing if the person is going to end up remaining in the christian cemetery then of what value is there so i asked this question to my father and he was very adamant that unless there's a separation of eight amos between the two graves it would be something that actually has no value at all so he proved that from a number of different sources but i then sent the video to Rav usher weiss and i asked him what he thought of it before agreeing to go and he responded that although it's true that you need to have a separation and remaining in a Christian cemetery is something that obviously is not called kavri Yisrael, but he said there's definitely what we call a To'eles HaNeshama. There's definitely some kind of value to have a cross removed from on top of a Jewish grave when you think about what the cross represents, when you think about how much Jewish blood was spilled on the cross and about our difficult relationship with the cross over so many thousands of years. So then he said there would definitely be a To'eles HaNeshama. He then proceeded to tell me a story about a Rav in Costa Rica who asked him the following, Shiloh, that he had a relative who was in an assisted living facility and ultimately this woman passed away and the assisted living took care of her burial. That was part of the arrangement. But it was a Christian assisted living and they buried her as a Christian and they put a cross inside of the casket, inside of the Yara. And this relative found out about it and he wanted to know, would there be a heter to exhume the body just to be able to remove that cross so to move it to another cemetery is a different story, but just to remove the cross, would we be allowed to do that? Or would you say that that is a and And he said, absolutely. He said that he thought that that was a good enough justification to violate the issue of and HaMais because everything that the cross represents to the Jewish people is something that is a horrible thing to be buried with. So that's what he felt. That's what he felt. I told the story to my father about this, um, about this, exhuming a body. So he told me that in the Sefer Sipuri Hasidim, he has a story about some Hasidish Rebbe who, um, there was a shortage of Hadassim one year and he didn't know what he was going to do. And somebody said they were going to go out of their way to to buy them. So somebody shows up to the Rebbe's house and he gives him all of these Hadassim and the Rebbe says, I'm sorry, I I can't use them. And they're all looking at him. Do you understand how much work I went through to get these? Nobody in the community has Hadassim this year. And I went out of my way to get them for you. So he said, let's go to the field where these Hadassim were picked from. And he dug up the ground and he found that underneath the ground there were crosses all over the place that were buried and the Hadassim were growing there. And this Rebbe said, I can't use Hadassim that grew in such a field. So, an interesting story. Obviously, the Sipuri Hasidim is not a halachic source, but it's a fascinating story. And this really was something that I was going back and forth about. Should I join this or not? In the end... My father said to me, if you're going to gain inspiration from doing it, and you'll bring it back home, and you'll inspire others by what you did, then of course it's worth it. And so I went. So I went to the other side of the world, um, just, to, just to be able to do this. We're told, when Yaakov Avinu comes back to Eretz Yisrael, Vayichan, the Pesach says, Vayichan es What exactly does it mean Vayichan es So the Gemara Mesecha Shabbos tells us that what it means, Vayichan is, he beautified the city. A few interpretations of what it means. Number one, the Gemara says, merchatsos. Yaakov Avinu built bathhouses for them. Or perhaps the Rashi quoting the Gemara says that he made a shopping mall Or Yaakov Avinu was Tikin lahem He made a whole economic system for them. Yaakov Avinu was very, very involved. But then the Medrash says another interpretation. What does it mean by Yichan? By Yichan means shabbos. Yaakov Avinu drew for himself the line of where the Trum Shabbos begins and ends. What does that mean? Tchum Shabbos means on Shabbos we are confined to stay in a certain restricted area. You're not allowed to go beyond that area. So Yaakov Avinu drew a line that was going to serve as his Tchum Shabbos. What is the relevance of that? How does that connect with the other commentaries that the Gemara quotes? And the answer to that is that Yaakov Avinu was extremely involved in his community. Yaakov Avinu was a person who was investing heavily in his community to make it better. Yaakov Avinu, the Gemara says, made made bathhouses. He was tiken lehemat beya. Yaakov did all kinds of things. And because he was so involved, he said, I also need to make sure that I draw a tchum. I also need to make sure that I draw a boundary. I need to make sure that I remain where I am. Like his grandfather, Avram Avinu, ger Vitoshev. At the same time as we contribute to society and do all the things that a good Jew is supposed to do as part of the community, we always need to remember that being a ger is something that is so, so important, that is so valuable to what it means to be a Jew. Um... Another aspect that I thought about on this trip was a point in Hashkafa that my father talks about all the time. You know, some people have a mistaken attitude that Yahadus, that Judaism, puts an exaggerated emphasis on the dead. You ever notice? We have Yartsite and we have Shiva, and we have Shloshim, and we have Kaddish, and we have Tikkun, and we have all these different things, and Yisker every Yantiv. We put so much emphasis on people who are dead. But that's really a mistake. That's really a mistake. The Gemara says in Maseches Yud zayn that if you have a crossroads and there's only room for one car to go through the crossroad, they can't both fit. In one car you have a group of people who are taking a mace to be buried. In the other car you have a caravan of people who are going to bring a kala chupasa. They're bringing a woman to get married. She's going to her wedding. So who takes precedence? Ask the Gemara. Who should go first? Kala goes first. Why should the Kala go first? What? So the Kala goes first, that's what the Gemara says, but the Gemara doesn't explain why. And the Shitim says quotes the Rishonim there, where they explain the reason. This Gemara, they explain, is not only telling us something about this case, about when you have a conflict between a mace and a Kala, but rather the Gemara is teaching us an overarching principle, and that is that Kavarachayim always takes precedence. To Mason. When you have a conflict between giving honor, bestowing honor to a mace versus bestowing honor to someone who's alive, bestowing honor to the live person is far more important than to the mace. And of course, we go to a Levaya and we give so much respect and we give kavod to the nifter, but it's more important than that to give kavod to somebody who is a chai, to somebody who is alive. And that is what the Gemara is teaching us. It's not simply about that case. It's something that expands so much further than that. I couldn't help but think to myself that here we were, a group of 20 people, who went to the other side of the world to pay a Kavad achron to the heroes, the Jewish-American heroes who passed away in World War II and to correct the wrong. But I asked myself, would I also be equally prepared to go to the other side of the world to ensure that somebody is afforded the proper Kavad Aharon? How far are we willing to go out of our comfort zone to make sure... That somebody is given the dignity that they deserve. Not after death, but while they're alive. And really, this is what the Bartanura says. You ever notice you come to a Leviah and they make an announcement, all rise. Why are we rising? Why are we rising? When this person was alive, I never stood up for them. So all of a sudden they die and now they're so important. So why do we stand up for them? The Bartanura says we're not standing up for the person who passed away. We're standing up for the Heber Kadisha who are involved in holy work. The Heber Kadisha who are altruistically doing a Chesot Shalemes, they deserve to be stood up for. That's why we stand up. We don't give extra kavod to a nifter more than we do to somebody who's alive. And therefore, I couldn't stop thinking about that. Would we go out of our way? Would we go to the other end of the world to be able to afford the kavod and the dignity to a human being who is alive the same way we'd be willing to do it for somebody who has passed away which really was something that i got a tremendous appreciation for over shabbos we spent shabbos in bangkok in thailand and i spoke in the shuler and it was an absolutely phenomenal shabbos very hard to describe what this extraordinary shabbos was like we ate together friday night with over 800 people 800 people it was amazing We couldn't breathe. There were 800 people in a very small space. But I have to tell you, there were a whole lot of lost Jewish souls who were there. Uh, One of the people who was on the trip with us lives in Manhattan Beach. And he gave the following muscle to explain uh, the Shabbos, which I thought was, was brilliant. He said that the last stop on the train is Manhattan Beach. So he said the conductor gets on after the last stop. And he says, okay, all off at the last stop. And they clear out the train. And he said, because of that, we end up with a lot of stragglers who otherwise have no other place to go. They end up at the last stop. They come out of Manhattan Beach. He said, last stop in the world is Thailand, Bangkok. And you end up with a whole lot of stragglers who are coming from all over the world. And I was thinking so much about it when I met so many people who are currently searching and trying to find themselves and meaning in their own lives. It's not an exaggeration to say that there were Jews from every corner of the globe who were there for Shabbos. There was a retired rabbi who was there from South Africa. I don't know what he was doing there for Shabbos. There were just so many people. I stayed up Friday night till after one. People were, kids were talking to me, and it was just, it was amazing just to have conversations with them and and appreciate their struggles. There were two Hasidish boys who were sitting there. They had payas and jeans and uh, black t-shirts. So I realized something was a little bit off so I moved my seat by the meal, and I went to sit next to these two kids to try to give them some chizuk. I started a conversation with them, I asked them, you know, where are you guys from? They said, oh, we're learning in Eretz Yisrael. I said, funny you say that, we happen to be in Thailand. <laughs> they said, yeah, but you know, we, we took off a couple of weeks, we just needed to get out. I said, okay. So we start having a conversation. One of the kids is very quiet, and the other one is engaging in conversation. Finally, the second kid turns to me and he says, what does your father do? And I thought it was such a strange question. What does my father do? So I told him, my father's a rav. So he says, oh, so you're also running away from him? Is that why you're here? <laughs> so what happened? This kid is the grandson of a very prominent Hasidic Shireva, and he is clearly running away from all of that. And dealing with a whole lot of turmoil in his life, it was amazing. It was just amazing. A lot of lost souls. And I have to say, what pained me more than anything else was when I saw three boys who were there from American Yeshiva Day Schools. They went to day school their whole life. They learned in Israel for the year. They then went to college campus. They are totally not from. They told me that they just graduated and now they're taking a couple of weeks before they go to work. And we have really failed our system. Our system has really failed us. Or we failed our children, whatever it may be. Something is very wrong. If we can send our children from kindergarten through 12th grade, go to learn in Israel for the year, go to secular college, and within six months, you're not from anymore. I asked these kids, what are you doing about kosher food? They said, yeah, Shabbos, we do the kosher thing. Like, you know, during the week, we don't really... It was so sad it really was very, very sad. But I can't really describe what the Shabbos was like. Such an amazing configuration of people sitting around and eating, singing Zmiros like I've never heard before. The davening was extremely Lebedic. um And the rabbi, Rabbi Wilhelm and his wife, are the shluchim there. And what struck me was the following. The rabbi uh, described to me that I'm not the rabbi for people who are far away, but I'm the rabbi for people who aren't yet close. That's what he said. Not the rabbi for people who are far away. I'm the rabbi for people who aren't yet close. So I was thinking to myself, here we are traveling across the world to uphold Jewish identity in a Christian cemetery only to spend Shabbos with hundreds of Jews who see very little value in their Jewish identity at all and are going to the other end of the world to run away from the Jewish identity. But more than that, I realized this Chabad couple actually did go to the other end of the world. They did do that and sacrifice of themselves to show Kavadah Chayim. So there we were showing Kavadah Meis, but there are those people going out of their way to show Kavadah Chayim. 800 people Friday night that you're hosting. After the meal was over, they invited everyone into their home, which was a massive house, and they have an Onik Shabbos there. Everyone gets up and tells their story. Everybody had very fascinating stories to share. But to me, that was the contrast. Are we prepared to go to the other end of the world? To uphold Kavod as well. So I spoke over Shabbos both Friday night and Shabbos day. Uh, what I spoke about was, was the following in Parshas Mishpatim that we just read this past week. There was a discussion about the Rotsach B'Shogeg. The Rotsach B'Shogeg is a bitterly painful story, and as we know, the Rotsach B'Shogeg feels terrible about the fact that he's taken someone's life, that he's responsible for somebody who was killed. So, what does the Torah advise that we do for a rotsach b'shogeg, somebody who inadvertently kills another person? What are we supposed to do? How do we respond? So, the Torah says, after you've been through this painfully traumatizing experience in your life, and after you feel so horrible about what you've done and the damage that you've caused, you know what you should do. Leave your family, leave your community, leave all the comforts of your home, leave it all behind pick yourself up and go to the Ari Miklat. The Ari Miklat is a designated city for despots like you. That's where you belong. The Ari Miklat is a place because you don't have a place in this community. We don't want you here. You're a murderer. So you know what we do? We're going to send you off to the Ari Miklat. And you ask yourself, is that really the response that HaKadosh Baruch Hu thinks is appropriate? After all, we know the Torah is The Torah is pleasant and compassionate and sweet. And here you have a person who's struggling with what they've done. It was something that was not a premeditated murder at all. It was something that happened as an accident. And this is what the Torah says our response should be. Go to the Yari Miklat and get out of town. Because that's where low lives like you belong. Is that really what it means? So this Fasemas quotes from his grandfather, the Chidusha Harim, that perhaps the understanding to the Yari Miklat is, if you look back at the way the Torah introduces us to the Yari Miklat, you'll appreciate what it's all about. HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells the person, The Roteach B'shogeg, shama What does that mean? I, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, will create a safe space for the person who feels they have no place in the world. You're a Roteach B'shogeg, you feel so uncomfortable, you're not able to go out into the supermarket, you think everyone's looking at you, you're never going to be able to face people again. You know what HaKadosh Baruch Hu says? I'll make space for you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu always has space for everyone. And therefore, the Arimiklat is by no means a punishment, but rather it's an opportunity for the person to be rehabilitated where HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I make space for you. And you should know, you should understand that you have a place in the world as well. Even though you've been through a terrible ordeal and even though you're so ashamed of what you've done, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I have space for you as well. And you have nothing to be concerned about. It's something that you should be proud of, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu always has room to accept everyone. I think it's no coincidence that HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the bracha that we give to somebody who's in mourning, somebody who's in shiva, what bracha do we say? HaMakam Yenachem Hashem. Perhaps what it means is, after a person has gone through a debilitating, devastating loss, after a person feels they have no place in the world anymore, where am I going to turn? How is life going to move forward? What am I going to do? We turn to that person and we say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, who is MeKomo Shel Olam. We refer to HaKadosh Baruch Hu as should make space for you again. Like we say here in the Pasuk, the samti lachama hakom HaKadosh says, I will make space for the person who feels that they have no space. I think as well, when we come to Leo Yom Kippur, so we're supposed to have an inadequate feeling. We don't really know where to put ourselves. We know that HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees straight through us. And we ask ourselves, do I really belong in shul? Do I really belong going through all of this? And we start off the davening by saying, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has space for you. And even though you feel very uncomfortable, and even though you feel you cannot face him, the Ribbon Shalom has space for everyone. And that's what's special about our relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We talk so much about Geula and Beis HaMikdash, and we wonder, what is it that we're missing? What is it that we're lacking without a Beis HaMikdash? We have shuls, we have the opportunity to serve HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we have the opportunity to connect. Why do we need a Beis HaMikdash? And the answer is, the Mishnah says, that the Beis HaMikdash is referred to as shel Olam, The Beis HaMikdash is referred to as The Makom. Why? It's the same theme. Because the Beis HaMikdash made space for everyone. The Mishnah writes, if you had somebody who was in the middle of Shiva, they came to the Beis HaMikdash, and they stood right next to somebody who just got married in the middle of Shavu Brachas, and both of them served HaKadosh Baruch Hu together. And the Gemara says, Ki beis, tfila beis HaMikdash was a place where if you didn't know they were, you belong there. If you were a big tzaddik, you belong there. doesn't matter what kind of person you are. Beis Amikdash has room for you. That's what we're lacking. Without a Beis Amikdash, we're missing that muckle where we're able to make comfortable space for everyone. And what I was most, most inspired by over Shabbos was here is a couple who goes out of their way to make space for everyone. People with piercings, backpackers coming from Israel, hundreds of people who are relying on them. They don't charge money to come eat there. It, it was an astounding observation to be a part of, to be able to see how people are willing to literally go to the other end of the world, to be able to help, not for Kavad Mace, but rather for Kavad HaChai. And that to me was the startling contrast. And what an amazing way to end our week after doing everything we did for the niftarim and for the Mason, to then have the opportunity to see what people are willing to do for the Chaim as well. And that to me was a great takeaway to always have this perspective. We go very far in our efforts to show covet on Mason. But it's important, as the Gemara says, that we also have to be equally as willing to go just as far to show and exhibit our covet to Chaim as well. So i